On this the great edition and mighty Scott Oprah Radley stood in front podcast, of the Golden Globes audience chat and said the most important my thing truth. you can do your truth. is speaking your truth. Her speaking truth. your truth is Whatever the most powerful happened to tool just we plain all had. Truth. We Everyone's all have. talking about telling and their it all truth. Makes me wonder I want to hear my truth. The word Whatever happened truth. to it? Why we'll your that. truth? My We're truth. About their truth. Her truth. Should everybody what in the happened city to of truth? Hamilton, even if you're in a place with no or little public transit, pay the same as those who have great public transit? Lloyd Ferguson, counselor, will join us to talk about that. Uh, Bubba O'Neill joins us to talk about Bryce Harper making $330 million and John Tavares returning home to New York for the island, to the island for a game. And Troy Landry from the show Swamp People, the king of the swamp, joins us to talk about his show coming to Hamilton this weekend and gator hunting. Shoot him! Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We're bringing our buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Sir, how are you tonight? Uh, just what a sports day. What a sports day. And you probably yeah. did not even see the biggest story in sports all day today that just came across. Clay the, Buckles? No, what happened to him? Clay Buckles signing with the Blue Jays. He did? Yep. I didn't even see that. Okay, so but this is even bigger than that, Bubba. I've got a story so enormous that you are going to have to clear all the rest of your coverage from your 11 o'clock sports segment and just do a thing on this. Ready? Because Johnny Manziel was in the news yesterday when the CFL banished him from playing in the league because he broke the violations of some of the code or whatever that he was supposed to follow. Well, Johnny Manziel is married to Bree Tiesi Manziel, who is a fitness model and... She and a friend who is a Playboy and Maxim model decided to do the Run Like a Diva half marathon on February 16 in California. Well, according to the timing devices, um, she, well, she, first of all, she ran the half marathon. She came in in under two hours, which considering she says she did not train for this, that's a stunning time. That's like elite level time. But more than that, they have pointed out that if you look at her chip times, she ran the first six and a half miles in an hour, 31 minutes and 29 seconds, averaging 14 minutes and 20 seconds a mile, which is normal. <laughs> uh, somehow their chip did not pick them up at the 11 mile marker, but both finished together 27 minutes later, meaning that according to this, she ran the last 6.7 miles at a pace of, at a four minute mile pace, which is a world record for women. This, this, this can't be true. Johnny Manziel's wife in her first ever race apparently has set a world record for the fastest half marathon final six miles. How about that? <laughs> so, so here's the thing: is that people are pointing out, well, they had made a an alteration to the course. Maybe she, you know, and maybe very innocently, she somehow took a wrong turn and cut a piece of it out, and so blah blah. But she's fighting against that, saying, "No, I did the whole thing." So she is basically a four minute miler with no training. How about that? I mean, I mean. <laughs> She's never done anything to me. I don't know whether to believe this or I not. I don't know what this story is. It's all over the place, but it's a hilarious story. Johnny Manziel, he, it's not enough to get banished from football, for up here anyway. Now he's got to deal with his wife being accused of who knows what. I mean, I don't even know if they're accusing her, but it's just a very funny story anyway. This is bizarre. I mean, and, you know. I guess She's the Rosie Ruiz of 2019. Maybe, maybe it's to take away, she did it to take away the uh, pressure from her husband. <laughs> I well, guess. except it was earlier than that, although who knows, maybe he'd taken, what, well, who knows what the stuff, we don't even know what the story is with him. Anyway, we got so much stuff. You said it's a busy sports day. I want to get to a few of these things because um, there is a lot of things. Let's start with, we'll get to the Leafs in just a second because uh, John Tavares, that story is pretty interesting. But uh, Bryce Harper signed a contract day. just a week ago we had, or three days ago, we had the biggest baseball deal from what's his name in um, Nolan Arenado thank you in Colorado uh, Bryce Harper blows this away today 13 years 330 million dollars to sign with the Philadelphia Phillies or was it 335 I can't remember uh, 330 330 alright uh, here's the thing I don't get about this Bubba Bryce Harper is a fine baseball player he 
had an MVP year three years ago, has not had a top 10 MVP vote since then. Last year hit 249, 34 homers, which is nice, but 13 stolen bases, and he was 22nd in the National League in OPS. It is hard to make a case that this guy is the best player in baseball. Well, or I, even I, in the top five in baseball. I, I don't think he, I don't think he has that tag right now, being the best player in baseball. But I think he has the tag of you know potentially being that guy because we've seen flashes of it. Uh, I think there by most you know in Major League Baseball last year was a bit of a write off because of uh, injuries. He played through injuries, so his hence his his average was down. His power numbers you know were you know pretty close to career averages over I guess seven years. Um, but I think the potential is there as a cornerstone player to build around. My, my surprise in this deal is on both ends for the player and the team of having a commitment that long. And, and I'm not surprised by the term, sorry, by the amount of money that he's getting paid. It's actually below what many of us expected Bryce Harper to be making. We, there was a thought he could be the first $400 million guy to sign a $400 million contract. The market hasn't reacted that way. That's why it took a long time for guys like Arenado, not so much Arenado, but for Machado and Harper as the big, you know, got three agent fish. It took this long into training camp for these guys to sign. So, uh, why would you want to lo- basically? He has now locked himself in with the Philadelphia Phillies until he's 39 years old, and that's a surprise to me. I might, if I was him, sign that kind of contract with that kind of length if I was playing my career in a warm weather climate, San Diego, Los Angeles, uh, even San Francisco. But playing in Philadelphia, which, you know, they've won some World Series, but, I mean, they're not competing right now, is a big surprise to me that you would go that long in terms of your term. For $300 million, Bubba, I would sign anywhere in the, on the planet you wanted me to to play any sport you wanted me to, doing anything you wanted me to. Three, I mean, someone did the math. I didn't do the math, and so I'm, I'm taking their word that it's correct. He will make... $45,000 per at-bat for the next 13 years. That's, that's, it's money that I don't think the average person can even remotely contemplate. Uh, it sounds like it's, it breaks down to about $156,000 per game, yeah, which is so. just you know, crazy. But you know what, Scott? I'm going to be honest with you. This is pro sports, and when we break down these numbers in pro sports, I kind of I I, I don't take too much of a shine to it because – that's pro sports, right? And that's just the way it goes. And that's you, you as a player have a right to, you know, get what you deserve in, in that sense. Now, it's a team that's making, that's decided to make that contract or make that contract off. Yep, yep. So to me, you know, it, it, I'm always, if you're a player, you go out there and get what market value is. And if you can get above what market value is, so be it. And he's in a position to do that kind of thing. Uh, again, the surprise to me is the length of contract because here's the thing, Scott. He could have easily signed a contract, probably getting paid the same uh, annual uh, average annual salary per year that he's getting right now on a much shorter term. Yes. Yeah. And had he pl- and had he played to his abilities, what we would expect him to, in five years from now, he could demand more than this. Well, d- as, depending as, on where the game is, yeah, he could have. He could have. As he- the market changes, as long as he plays to standard. I mean, there's no reason to believe that he, in five years from now, and we don't know how the market will react, but I'm going to get with inflation, he probably could be asking for $40 million for five more years. Here's my suggestion if I was his manager for this first season in Philadelphia. Now that he is seen as a guy with a bit of an ego and a bit of a chip, and he's left Washington, and you know, he, who knows? How, I mean, he'll, they'll love him in Philadelphia, I'm sure. But here's, here's what I would say if I was his manager. It's $45,000 per at-bat. Every time you strike out this season, donate $45,000 to a local food bank or a local charity. You would be beloved, not just in Philadelphia. You would be beloved and you would be an example around the league. You, that would be, and he would still be living a very nice life. A very nice life. I think it would. I think it would be amazing. But anyway, not my money and not my call. Yeah, I, I mean, and we're not privy, and we probably know we don't live in the area. I, I would believe that you know, as many guys have, and you know, the PK Subban for some reason comes to my mind because of what he did in Montreal and still continues to do for his commitment to Montreal. A lot of these guys do set up foundations, and there are players among all pro sports that set up these foundations and contribute a tremendous amounts of their salary, but they don't make it publicly known. And, and to me, that's you know, kind of their right. Uh, John Tavares playing in Long Island tonight 
Uh, going back to Long Island, he is, I don't even know if being booed is the, uh, the right word. He's, I mean, he is, he is hated there in, in a way that is unique. I think a lot of players, when they leave a team, especially if they're a good player, they are hated, but they're allowed, the Islanders fans are fully allowed to feel this way. Are they not? Sure. And, and I'll tell you why, um, they're a loyal group, and they stood around for pretty much most of the nine years that he was with Long Island, and, and now this team is currently playing tonight's game in Long Island. I like that they're playing some of these games back in the old Unionville uh, rink, but, uh, and they're playing most of their games in Brooklyn. Now, it's a big game. It's sold out. He's the guy that was seen as the guy to get them to the promised land. And when he was approaching free agency, I'm not saying that John Deveris is a liar, but you can go back and listen to many, many press conferences and clips and that kind of stuff. And I would say, being totally neutral here, because I'm not a Maple Leaf fan, that he made it look like he was going to come back to the franchise and be that guy to continue to lead this team. Uh, And then he hit free agency and still continue to have the Islanders in tow. And from what I'm hearing, the, uh, the contract that was offered to him by the Islanders was more lucrative, amazingly, than what the Maple Leafs, he took with the Maple Leafs to come home. So that's why these people are pissed off. They're upset. They're furious. And I look, I, here's the thing, is there are people in this area who are saying, oh, come on, get over it, grow up, all this kind of stuff. And Could you imagine if the shoe was on, if Austin Matthews goes back well, to Arizona the same way? That was the absolute example that I was thinking of, is that if Austin Matthews had said, I'm not signing, it's my dream, I grew up, I have my pajamas in my bed with my Arizona Coyotes logos, and I've dreamed of playing for the Arizona Coyotes, and he left Toronto, people here would be ever Every bit as out of their minds, and so it's it, it's it's kind of two faced. To... Sorry to interrupt, Scott. I mean, what, the way you presented that, I'm not just blaming you here, but I'm just saying the way that you presented that—that's what Austin Matthews would have said before signing. That it was always been my dream to do that. Tavares never said any of this. That his dream. There was no clue. Other, there was lots of uh, knowledge that Toronto were interested, but he had never ever said that going home or. Going back to Toronto was it was something that was in his you know in his wheelhouse. He kept very close yep. to the vest and very much said that you know his desire was to come back to Long Island. He realized the responsibility that he had nine years ago when they drafted him first overall, and all of that. He liked the city. He like he liked living there, as many people do. Apparently, living in Long Island is beautiful. Um, well, everybody's and, neighbor is Billy Joel, apparently, so that's good. Yeah, it's a wealthy place. But there's another are, example. I mean, right. there is another example that people seem to have forgotten about this these last few days, again, with everybody saying that the Islander fans should just get over it. Because, I mean, look, they did that video, which was the Dear John letter video thing, which was, it was way over the top. But anyway, um, John Farrell, manager of the Blue Jays, managed the Blue Jays for, what, three years, something like that, and then said, I've got this opportunity to go back to the Red Sox, which is my dream job, and people around here lost their noodles. And mm-hmm. said, you are a traitor, you're turning your back, you're a jerk, and every time John Farrell came back here, he was hated, and the media hated him, and the fans hated him. How is that different? Yeah. And and we acted the same way as Toronto sports fans acted that way. And here's the, and you know, to, you're, you're making me think here, if you remember, in that scenario with Farrell, the year before he kind of made it known that he was interested in going there, and everyone went crazy, and including the Blue Jays, who ended up saying basically telling him that he couldn't go because of you know uh, something that was stipulated in his contract. So we knew for the most part that the first opportunity that he had to go, he was going to go. Now we were acting with that with that in our knowledge, we we still as Toronto sports fans, went ballistic and booed him, and he went on to win two World Series, <laughs> which is the funny thing. It is, uh, it is something. It is, uh, it is quite a story. Listen, uh, we're going to cut it sh- a little bit short today. I'm sorry to do this to you, Bubba, but I appreciate you calling in. I appreciate you doing this. We're going to let you run. Bubba's on at 11 o'clock tonight on CHCH. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. Hey, by the way, do you know what happened nine years ago today? What happened nine years ago today? Sidney Crosby's goal. Oh In the my. Olympics, Sidney Crosby, nine years ago today. So you can go back on YouTube and 
study that. For a generation, uh, maybe the biggest game Absolutely. in Canadian sports history. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Thank you, sir. Thanks, bud. Have a good one. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Plenty of discussion took place at Hamilton City Council today, some of it quite heated, about whether all Hamiltonians right across the city from border to border to border to border should pay equally for transit, even if some people's service is going to be demonstratively and massively better than other people's, and some people's is going to be way less than other people's. And of course, this is another argument between the suburbs and the downtown, largely. Uh, What we're talking about, by the way, is a discussion about the removal of area ratings so that you no longer are paying a certain amount of tax for this based on where you live, based on service. The suggestion was made today that places like Ancaster, Stony Creek, Dundas, Flamborough would perhaps or should perhaps pay as much as $100 up to $250 more per household to get improved bus services right across the city, even if it meant that there was no assurance that that would mean an improvement in bus service to their area. I want to bring in Ward 12 Councillor from Ancaster, Lloyd Ferguson, who was on the side of... Well, I'll, I'll let him describe what side he was on. Lloyd, thanks for doing this today. Well, thanks for having me on, Scott. Uh, let me lead in with this before I let you say what side you were on. And you were quoted with, by uh, Matthew Van Dongen today by saying, if this happened, your constituents would be getting screwed. I think that, I think that probably explains where you stand. <laughs> I don't know. I don't recall saying that, but I'm sure I did because I was pretty angry. And uh, right now, I'm, I'm, you know, with what's transpiring with high school sites being threatened to be sold off and, and, and with being invaded by these uh, medical and, and recreational marijuana facilities eating up our rural areas, you know, and, and, and today we got whacked with this uh, removal of the area rating. And area rating is complicated for someone who doesn't follow this closely. But with transit, area rating means that wards one through eight, which is the old city Hamilton, get the bulk of the service. In fact, the report said today that those uh, eight wards get 95% of the bus service in the entire city, which is pretty substantial. And then any service, bus service that the suburban municipalities want uh, would pay it on a per kilometer basis. And so if we want to add a route, they measure the kilometers, there's a rate per kilometer, and we plug it in. And, and uh, well, three years ago, I did significantly enhance the service along Garner Road, Rymel Road, Bus 44, to extend it into the industrial park and ultimately expanded it to be uh, include evenings and weekends. And uh, because, we, you know, the Ancaster Industrial Park is incredibly popular. There's thousands and thousands of people now who work in there. One company employs more than Stockholm employees. That's how successful this park is. And I felt obligated, even though the people of Ancaster only would pay for it, to extend a bus route in there because people who live in the mountain have to get to work. What's driving me absolutely crazy is every time I see a bus on the road in Ancaster, it's empty. And, and so the public are not using it. And, and, but we, we haven't reduced service, but you know, the mayor and others are determined it's just politically sexy to improve transit, regardless of what it costs. And, and I'm just doing a run-up here for you, Scott. And, and, you know, we saw during the budget presentation that our staff wanted to uh, implement year four of the uh, 10-year transit strategy, which is uh, uh, a strategy to um, improve transit service. And, but we, we checked in on, on how we're doing. I, I asked for a report. There were assumptions made on population and ridership when we launched the strategy in 2014. How are we doing compared to those assumptions? And in 2018, our passenger count, our, our um, trips on HSR, are two million less than what were forecasted back in 2014. One million less than what the actual numbers were in 2014. So we're not improving ridership. Ridership impacting is falling and falling like a rock. This is not exclusive to Hamilton. This is a North American phenomenon, and we've all guessed what's causing this. But it don't matter. Um, the public are not using the transit the way we had. Well, Lloyd, let me jump in for a sec, because the, the people who support transit would say the reason the public is not using it is because it's not a good enough system. If it was a really good system, more people would use it. And you're saying we have this bus, for example, running to the Ancaster Industrial Park, and nobody uses it even though it's there. So which side is right? Well, it's a chicken and egg thing in that regard. But I tell you, the service is pretty good along the B-line every 10 minutes. 
how much better can you get than that? And and despite that, and that's our, our big route. That's us all service to the lower city. Back again, that the old city Hamilton, 95% of the trips we provide are in in the old city Hamilton. And, and it's a chicken and egg thing. Yeah, do you keep adding bus service and let them run empty? We have about 15 routes now that are running significantly below where they should be at peak times. We had that report also. So today that area rating issue popped its ugly head again. And, uh, you know, if you put the same cost to everyone in the whole city for transit, so we all pay the same, Ancaster taxes would go up 3.5%. And that's not much different than in the other suburban municipalities. Stony Creek a little less because they have more service. But it's a 3.5% increase in my area. And which is about two hundred dollars, two hundred fifty dollars per home, and and uh, you know the, the assessed value of homes in Ancaster. If somebody would ask you what's the average assessed value in in, in Hamilton, it's around three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand dollars. Ancaster's double that. So whatever number you hear quoted, double it for Ancaster because of the the assessed value, and because that's how our tax structure has been set up and set up for decades, and and so I just have trouble, serious trouble. We're shoving the taxes up by 3.5% for the people of Ancaster with no increase in service. Lloyd, you also said, and I, I saw this, and I didn't know if this was serious or somewhat tongue-in-cheek, when you threw out the idea of a revolt against this. Was it a joke, or was it something you were serious about? Well, listen, uh, the number one issue for my constituents in Ancaster is the high level of taxation, and and that's because the praise values are so high. And And you mentioned that, yeah, I'm frustrated, Yes, I'm angry, but I also feel helpless. And the reason I feel helpless is you count the votes. Uh, with the realignment of the ward boundaries, we um, uh, the, the wards one through eight and, and the new 14, which is the part most of its most, uh, part of the old ward eight, um, will now outvote us. You count the votes, we're going to lose uh, if the old city gangs up on us, and and uh, so. I, I, and I just feel helpless on that. Um, and so I am frustrated, I am angry, and, and I do feel helpless. And let me give you another statistic to, to show that we're paying our fair share. Number uh, War 12, which is Ancaster and West Flamborough, so the northern boundary in the last election went from 403 to Highway 8. So it's, it's four times the land mass. So we're number one in the, uh, of all the wards in the, in the city, all 15 wards for land mass. We have the highest population, but more importantly, the amount of taxes generated at Award 12, the total tax that's remitted to the city, is the highest in the whole city, too. And that's because we have um, a lot of homes that are assessed at high values and generates more tax revenue. And now you want to layer this extra 3.5% on us for a service that we don't necessarily want. Yes, some people may want enhanced transit, but for the most people, uh, nobody during the last campaign asked me for better transit in Ancaster. Now, my phone may ring off the hook tomorrow for saying this on your show, but uh, it's not a pressing issue in my area. And t- for me, it resonates with me when I see the buses up and down Wilson Street running empty. And, uh, and, and so you're going to layer another 3.5% tax increase on us. And then you're, you're saying that it's a chicken and egg thing, that you have to have the service before you can get the ridership. And, but we're getting no increase in ridership for that 3.5%. I've asked for a report, what's it going to cost us, if, if it, the whole city, if, in fact, we bring the suburbs up to get the same level of service that the, the former city Hamilton gets, and that's forthcoming. And, and uh, so that will get added to the 3.5%, and quite frankly, that will cause a revolt, to answer your question. Well, there are six councillors that are now being tasked with trying to figure something out. Three are from the old city and three are from the suburbs. What is your level of confidence that those six councillors are going to be able to come to some sort of consensus that will be satisfactory to, to the suburban people especially, or to, well, frankly to any of them? Well, it's going to be a very divisive issue. Uh, I, I don't have the answer to that question, Scott. I've, I've, I've volunteered to go on that committee. Um, and I'm pretty outspoken about this, so I think I can bring the suburban perspective to it and see if there's a compromise in there somewhere. Uh, one thing that uh, we were able to do today is boot this down the road, so it's not going to be part of the 2019 budget. It's coming back in 2020. So this this uh, subcommittee has a year now to come back with a recommendation to the rest of council on, on what a potential compromise could be. 
It is, and you know, some people are going to say, I assume that okay, it's two hundred and fifty bucks, and it's Ancaster, and Ancaster people have lots of money, so no big deal. The I guess the challenge with this, when I looked at this, is there was also a discussion today about clearing sidewalks, which would be an extra amount of money, and then you've got the increase for other things. There is a point at which this starts to add up. Absolutely, and 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 one thing that struck me, they call me frugal Fergie on council, and and I admit that I watch costs continuously but that's my business training i can't help it that we you know from 32 years it was beat into my head we have to have a relentless quest for cost reduction otherwise you're out of business your competition will walk all over you and i don't feel that that same tension here at the city so i'm trying to offer that to my council colleagues but uh you know there's not a um there's always this desire to add more service whether it's transit or sidewalk clearing or you know, a living wage. There's a slew of them that are out there that are being seriously considered to add to the tax uh, right now. Now, the impact uh, for the 2019 budget as it sits today on Ancaster is 1.8%. And the reason it's 1.8% is because for decades, um, Ancaster appraised sus values were going up faster than the lower city. But with uh, the hint of LRT coming and with uh, millennials liking living in the, the downtown area, those lands that were horribly devalued are coming back. And so the appraised value is shifting now from Ancaster and other suburban areas back to the lower city because it, the, the developers are starting to pay good money to be able to put it up. In, we're accepting 34 heights in, uh, in, the, in the, the old city, in, in the lower city which is, um, puts much more value on the land. And, and so people like in Ward 1, 2, and 3 are in the 4 to 4.5% tax increase as a result of this assessment shift. But that's just bringing it back to where it used to be. And so Ancaster gets some relief in that. So for 2019, um, I'm okay with the 1.8%. I mean, of course, I would prefer it was zero. But um, I, can, I think I can live with 1.8%, which is right around the rate of inflation. I mean, we are adding a lot of new staff. We're adding 25 uh, new police officers with this 10-year strategy, 30 more um, bus drivers, 10 more paramedics because of the aging population and the calls for service for EMS. And, and so, um, and, and we're just about done. We're, we've probably got two more meetings in the 2019 budget will be set. But this whole tension around the area rating and other sidewalk clearing, it'll be booted in the 20. Uh, 2020. Councilor Lloyd Ferguson, appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, If you've been following anything about what's been happening in politics in this country over the last few weeks, and especially yesterday, especially yesterday when Jody Wilson-Raybould spoke in front of the Commons Committee, uh, you know what's going on with all the details. We're not going into all the details today. We're going to stay on a couple words. Because shortly before, uh, two days ago, or uh, yeah, two days ago, Jody Wilson-Raybould, when she was interviewed, said she was getting prepared to speak her truth, my truth. She said, I'm going to speak my truth at the committee. And then after it was done, after she had her four hours in front of the committee, Christina Freeland, Christina Freeland, foreign affairs minister, said she believes Jody Wilson-Raybould spoke her truth. And of course, this all, I think almost all of it goes back about a year ago to the Golden Globe Awards when Oprah, the great and mighty Oprah, stood in front of the Golden Globes audience and said, the most important thing you can do is speaking your truth. Speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all had, we all have. And it all makes me wonder why the word ahead of truth, why your truth, my truth, their truth, her truth, what happened to truth? Dr. Jeremy Sherman is a psychologist. He writes for Psychology Today. He's touched on this before in a number of pieces that he's written. Wanted to bring him in and talk about this. Dr. Sherman, thanks for doing this today. So nice to be with you, Scott. Once upon a time, there's, I think there was truth and there was untruth, and it was either true or it wasn't true. And as I said in the intro, now we have this thing called my truth. Is this just a redefinition of the word, or is it something bigger than that? Um, I, th- I think it goes way back. I think it's a very old issue. Um, uh, so I, I don't think it's new, although it is amusing how we're dealing with it in both of our countries. I'm in the United States, um, and yesterday uh, we had variations on it as well. Um, we had um, 
uh, Cohen talking, testifying in, before Congress and talking about how he has lied, but he's not a liar. Um, there are all these ambiguities around truth. I, I'm a psychologist, but I'm also an epistemologist, which means someone who studies what knowledge is um, and how we would know whether someone's got knowledge. And I would say the fundamental issue we're dealing here is the difference between honesty and truth. When you, when, when, when you put the word your before truth, you're really talking about honesty. Um, I could honestly believe in Santa Claus. I could, I could believe it with all my heart. That's, that's an honest opinion from me if I believed it. And it has nothing to do with whether Santa Claus is in fact real. So, so at least we have to begin to see that important difference. Um, here in this country, uh, uh, a lot of people think that Trump tells it like it is. What he does is he tells his, um, his honest opinion, perhaps, um, which has little to do with whether it's true. But what seems to be happening with, and especially as Oprah gets up and talks, because I mean, we all know the power that Oprah packs whenever she speaks. Uh, when you say now that there is something that is my truth, it's as if we're saying this is something that has merit now, though. When you speak your truth, it's something that we should be trusting, we should be honoring, we should be believing. And that, to me, is where this thing gets confusing. If you, You're right. If you want to say that the earth is flat and that's your truth, knock yourself out. But I'm not expected to tell you, oh, sure, that's great. The earth is flat. I believe you. We say, no, you're nuts. But OK, you're allowed to have that view. It seems that we're now expected to honor the fact that if it's your truth, it's something good somehow. Right. Yes. And, I, and actually, you take her, her idea that you should speak your truth. Um, uh, that's actually nonsense, um, uh, and you would only notice that by looking for contradictions in it. A contradiction rule to her idea of a principle. So she uses this idea, speak your truth. What, what, that's actually synonymous with saying, uh, share your honest opinion. And nothing is more important than you sharing your honest opinion. Well, I suppose in a, in a, in a democratic, democratic debate where there is a healthy arbitration over people's honest opinions, that's fine. But to claim that it's the absolute priority, that, you, that, ev- that everybody should just speak their honest opinion, that, with, uh, rhetorically trumped up as your truth, um, is, is a mistake. And we can find plenty of examples. Just think of examples of people who got too powerful by spreading their honest opinion as if that was the purest and highest virtue of all. Well, and if, so and, if, I, and if, Doctor, if your truth is the highest virtue, as you say, if I am to believe your truth, how could we ever convict anyone in court? Because every criminal would say, this is my truth, and we're supposed to say, sure, okay. And how could we ever catch a politician in a lie? Or do, it, it, it becomes this thing that there is no more truth anymore. It's just whatever you yes. say it is. Yes. That's, that's, that's exactly the point. So, so when someone extols some high virtue like that, the way Oprah does, what people mostly do is they're wooed by it. They're just, it sounds so beautiful, sounds so true, and it, it sounds also, it, it, it's the ultimate goal. We would all like to have the liberty to speak our truth and have it stand. We would like the last word. So you hear a thing like that, and you look at actually all the contraindications, all the ways in which it's actually disastrous um, when you get when you get people who are just speaking their truth as if that as if their freedom of speech is also freedom from being challenged, uh, freedom to, to not uh, freedom of other people to not listen to it, um, to ignore it, and to move to, uh, in the pursuit of what what's more realistic. Part of the challenge with this is then if you tell me what is your truth and you firmly believe this and I challenge that, I'm kind of now saying that I'm, I don't know, saying you're not telling the truth or I'm making you have less value. I'm not really sure, but now that becomes a difficult thing because if it's your truth and I say it's not truth, then I've cut your legs out from under you. Uh, that's right. And, and actually, I have to raise another challenge that's related to this, which is, um, yes, we can all say there is a pure truth that is independent of your opinion and mine. But in fact, we don't have a, an obvious way to get to it. Um, this is the fundamental challenge. That is, there is no higher authority that can, can, can adjudicate whether your truth or my truth is the better truth. We can claim that facts will do it, but facts don't quite do it either. Um, 
And so what we end up with, especially these days, is what I'll call an infallibility battle. An infallibility battle where is where either, either I'm right about everything, my, my truth is right about everything, or your truth is right about everything. And the way we play out this uh, high-stakes game, where either you're right about everything or I'm right about everything, is that either one of us make one false move, the other person gets to see, ah, see, you were wrong about that, you're wrong about everything. And at that point, the, the, the debate degenerates into nonsense. So you mentioned off the top and absolutely correctly that you've had a political situation yesterday with the hearings um, that were going on about Trump and his lawyer. We have the one up here with Jody Wilson-Raybould. You have different people then citing their truth. How do we then, who whose truth becomes the truth when truth now seems to not be truth but opinion? How do we, how do we sort out who is actually telling the truth? Well, we do have... Uh, 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 traditions in our cultures that have evolved over many centuries to get at best guesses at what is the truth. Um, the legal system is designed, for example, to to do that. But I should declare right up front that I am an infallibilist. That is, I believe that all of our all of our personal that could prove wrong. It doesn't make me uh, mealy mouth. My, my motto as a fallibilist is no matter how confident I am in a bet, I'm still more confident that it is a bet. That is, we are all guessing. And since I have a background in evolutionary biology, I also argue that all life has always been guessing. That's kind of hard news from Darwinism, is that there are no surefire truths. We're all approximating reality with our best guesses. And we do have methods, the scientific method, the legal method, our attempts to make better bets, to guess better. Um, and and I, I, think they're, I think they're good, but we're all, I think they're still being tested, because in both of our countries right now, norms, social norms, are being violated um, by people who are being brazen, who have figured out that they can actually get a lot of people to follow them simply by never apologizing and always accusing other people of being wrong. And so as a result, the norms are being tested, and as a result, we are going to have to come up with better laws to make it so that we can follow, so we can track reality more effectively. You mentioned... Right now they're... Sorry, you no, know, but you mentioned the, the idea of that we all get to do this, and there's no actual absolute truths. And while we may agree or disagree with that, there are things, especially in the legal system, where you have evidence that would at least lead you to believe much more strongly that one side may be correct or the other, to the point where we can be confident that what we're saying happened. happened. But my, my concern, my problem with, what, with calling this my truth or your truth is yeah. that we're changing the definition of the word so that something that was objective, an objective standard, truth was supposed to be the objective standard, is now something completely subjective. And so where do we, what's left for us that's objective? Well, uh, for me, since I also work in political strategy, uh, a key is to call it out. What I said a minute ago that I'm a fallibilist. That is, I believe that all, all we have to work with here on Earth is opinions about what's true, and that we have to negotiate and, nav- and navigate that together somehow. And that's what these traditions are about. But we've also got the rise of, you, you could call them infallibility cults. These are cults that claim that their truth, their personal truth, is the last word. These people are, by design, incorrigible. That is, they are anti-adaptive. They do not, they, will, they cannot be corrected. And so what you get with, with this kind of trumped-up language, like my truth, as if it's the highest possible thing, is that I get to state my truth and you all have to listen to it, is just the sound of infallibility combating the true solution, which is that we have to, we have to make better bets. Nobody gets the last word. It is a uh, it is a fascinating topic. This is one you could have over about a five hour dinner and still not get to the end of, and still be going strong. Uh, Doctor Jeremy Sherman, you can read his stuff at Psychology Today. He's got lots of great stuff there. Really appreciate you taking some time today for us. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This weekend here in Hamilton is the Hamilton Boat Show. It's up at the um, airplane warplane heritage museum. 
And many of you are viewers, fans, have watched the show Swamp People on TV. If you don't know it, boy, it's hard to explain. If you do know it, boy, you know it. But the guy who really is the front and center, the star of that show, is going to be up at the Warplane Heritage Museum signing autographs, making an appearance. His name is Troy Landry. He is the king of the swamp, and he joins us now. Troy, how are you tonight? Hey, man, I'm doing good in y'all. Uh, hey, thanks for joining us. Glad you would go. It's been a little bit of a challenge hooking with you, but I'm glad we finally got you on the line. Thanks for doing this. Would uh, I, no problem, man. I enjoy it. Would I be safe in guessing that a few years ago when you were hunting gators by yourself, that the idea that people may want to fly you around the country or out of the country to sign autographs may have been something you would have had a hard time believing? No, yeah, definitely. I would have never dreamed all of that, man. Do you but do that? Ma- what you just that's the perfect I'm the perfect example you just never know where life is going to take. Do you do many of these? Oh yes, I do plenty of them, yeah. Tell me how this became how, how did Troy, how did you end up on TV? How did this actually become a TV show? Well, there was the History Channel came to Louisiana and they were looking for the best best looking alligator hunter they could find. And they found the best looking, the best looking alligator they could hunter they could find, and he turned them down. So then they came to me next. <laughs> but how did they? Did they say to you when they came there? Did they explain what was their interest, or how they had become aware of this, or how they thought that this could be a TV show? Well, it, you know, it, it all got twisted around from the first year. It was it. It wound up being a reality show, but at first it was supposed to be only a documentary. Oh. And then it got all switched around, and here we are 10 years later, and we're still filming. Had you ever, did anyone down there know you? Like, how how did they stumble upon you? How did they find you? Well, the History Channel got my name and phone number from Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries. Okay. Uh, They looked up a lot of information on alligators. They spent about two and a half weeks there. And then they asked them for hunters' names, you know, names of hunters. Yeah. And that's how they had got my name. So legitimately, back then, uh, you were a guy that the people down there knew as one of the better gator hunters? That was legitimately how they came across you? That's right, exactly. So they they say then that they're going to do either a documentary or a, or a show, but when they, when they turn it into a reality show, so it's going to become something, did you... You do this for a living. Did you have any idea that anybody else outside of that part of the world would be interested that this thing could become a hit? No, man, not at all. Not not at all. Nobody had an idea. Either. So so when how, when did you learn? Because I think it was the first episode set some kind of records on on History Channel. It was the most watched show it ever. Did, yeah. W- were you shocked? That's right, it surely did. Were you yeah. shocked? Yeah, it did. It, it it broke all the records at the History Channel, and and the records still stand till today. <laughs> do you watch it? Oh yeah, we watch it all the time. Yeah. Do you so Do you like seeing? Your, I mean, are you comfortable watching yourself on TV? Because some people uh, aren't. Yeah. Well, you know they're famous every day of the wild season, and uh, we don't know what they're going to use and what they're not going <laughs> to use. So when I watched the show for the first time, I. You know, that's the first time I see what they used and what they didn't use and all of that. Is, is the fact that they don't use everything, is that for better or for worse? <laughs> no, they, they, they leave out, to me, I mean, in my mind, they leave out a lot of the best stuff. But I guess they got reasons for what they use and what they don't use, you know. Uh, what do you think? Because, again, you work in this world. This is something you obviously enjoy doing as well as doing it for a living. What do you think is the appeal of this for people who would never hunt a gator? Why do people watch it? I don't know. I guess it's maybe for the beauty of the swamps that you see on TV. And some people are just fascinated with alligators. I mean, they've been around since the time of dinosaurs. And, you know, it's, it's... a way of life that's fading away, even where we live, it's, especially these days with the price of alligators now. A lot of people that depended on alligators are having to look to do something else. How, how, what, I mean, what is an alligator worth these days? When you bring one in, what does it cost? What, what do you get for it, per pound or per gator Very or whatever? little these days. Uh, up until about two or three years ago, a big alligator was worth about maybe three to $400. 
a small one was worth a hundred to hundred fifty dollars, and now the last couple of years the small one is worth about maybe five to fifteen dollars, anywhere in between there, and a big one might be worth maybe a hundred dollars instead of three to four hundred. Is that because of over hunting? Because I thought they had limits on how many no, they could bring no, in. No, no, overpopulation. They're raising them on farms now. Mm. They're raising them on farms and they're putting us out of business. This, though, obviously has had a big impact on your life, this show. Oh, yeah. Thank God for the History Channel, yeah. Do oh, you, Lord, yeah. Even down there, and maybe mostly down there, like everybody recognizes you now. You're, you're a huge celebrity down there. Oh, Lord, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. More yeah. Than now. Do you ever have to pay for meals or do you always get your meals free down there now? I get a lot of free ones. I pay for some, but I get a lot of free ones, believe me. Troy, how did you get started in this? Was this a fa- was this a family business? Yeah, yeah, that's it. So your dad had taught you or your grandpa or? Mm-hmm, yeah, definitely. The fact that you have to do it now, though, and, and by the way, again, if people don't know uh, Swamp People, they should go watch it because it's way easier to explain, but it's a bunch of folks from down where Troy is in Louisiana who are literally on the swamps hunting gators and it... It makes for a compelling show, I got to tell you. And I, the question I asked, Troy, I don't know how to answer it either. I've watched it a bunch of times, and I, I have no idea why, but you flip to the channel and you end up staying there and watching it. Um, does it does it complicate what you do now that there are other boats around with film crews and everything else? Does it make it more oh, difficult? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. How? Camera crews make it, camera crews slow us down a lot. They make it a lot harder for us to do our work, and we can't. You know, we can't uh, run as many lines as we used to run, but the pay is good enough to where we don't want to make them go away. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, well, how does Especially it work then? these days with the price of alligators where they are the last few years, I mean, it's terrible. How does this work then? Walk me through a taping. Like you go out in the morning, do you just meet up with the crew and then all of you just go out for a day on, and you they just follow you wherever you go? No, 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 no. We get a game plan the night before. I stay up late getting a game plan of where we're going to go, me and the boys. And, uh, and you know, and, and we go set lines and then we run them. You got to run your lines every day and you got to try to get to them as soon as you can, as early as you can. Because you might have the last line you're going to run that day, might have the biggest alligator you caught all day and it could be in the sun. So you got to try to hurry up and get to all your lines as soon as you can. Do the TV people ever tell you, I don't really like your plan, let's do something different? No, no. Uh-uh. No, but only, you only, they do not, but you only see about maybe 30% of the alligators we catch on TV. Hmm. Okay? Like myself this year, okay? They might show me catching 50 or 60 alligators on TV this year. And I mean, my boys caught 560 of them. Wow. So... You don't see a, a fraction of what really goes on in the boat. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Just like setting lines. We set a lot of lines. You never see a setting lines and stuff like that. It's not exciting, so they don't think the people care to see that, so they don't show it. And, and I would assume you don't... Do they ever ask you to do a redo? I mean, they can't, you can't re-kill an alligator, but, no, do they, no. but do you ever have to retape certain things to try for better angles or anything? No. No, they make notes. Every day we're on the water, they make notes of what happened. And then when the season's over, the wild season's only 30 days long. So when it's over, they sit us in a chair and they ask us questions. On day one, this happened. Tell me what you remember. Day two, this mm. happened. Tell me what you remember. So, and if you don't remember, they read the notes that they, they make. They take down notes every day while you're hunting. And, and who comes up with all the names for the gators that you're hunting? You or them? Oh, we, yeah, we usually do. We just usually, <laughs> uh, you know, they got a gators we've been hunting for years that we've never caught. Some we eventually catch them, but some of them it takes a long time. The, uh, the, the, in every time that you guys catch a gator, there is always the shot with you leaning over the boat uh, with your rifle taking the shot. How many of those do you have to do every year? Because obviously that's, you're not shooting right into the oh, camera while the gator is there. That's Sometimes we'll shoot four or five times. I mean, you only see one shot on TV, but sometimes it takes four or five shots. Really? To get them. 
do yep. people they now knock them out, yeah. now that this show has become such a big deal for you and for the History Channel and everything else, do you have people coming down to your area, to the swamp, whatever, to try and find you, to look to see if they can find oh, you yeah, hunting? Every day. Do you? Every day, every day, yep. So while you're on the water, you might have a boat pull up alongside? Oh, sometimes they come by boat, that's right. Really? Do, oh, yeah. Do people ever ask to come out hunting with you? All the time, every day. And do you? But I have a contract with the History Channel. I got to bring their camera people. I can't bring other people. So you don't you don't do but, charters or anything then for people to come if they want the to. But when the show goes away, that's what we're going to do. Oh, is when that the right? Show goes away when the when the History Channel tells us they're done with us. That's what we plan on doing. How has this show, if at all, changed the industry? Because a lot of people, again, you knew about it, but most people around the country didn't <clears> know <throat> about this very much beforehand. How, how well, has it the changed? Show is, the show has helped the industry in the, in the fact of uh, the meat. Uh, alligator meat wasn't worth very much, and you couldn't sell a whole lot of it. But since the show came out, everybody and their mama want to eat alligator now. <laughs> so restaurants that would sell 100 pounds a week, they're selling, a, I mean, I'm sorry, 100 pounds a month, they're selling 100 pounds a week now. So it has helped that, but it, unfortunately... Uh, with the price of the meat going up since the show started, the farms that raise them then got bigger and bigger. So it, it's, they're putting us out of business. Are there any more, because of the show, are there any more regulations that have been put in place to make sure there's not people oh, just no. going, no, it's all stayed the same? Oh, no. All of that stayed pretty much the same. All right, so Troy, if I was down there, I and people who watch the show know this, you wear the baseball cap, you've got the polo shirt, you got the boots. People down there would recognize you in a second. Where outside of that area, where's the strangest place someone has actually said, "Hey, you're Troy Landry?" All over, man. Everywhere I go, airports, it don't matter where. Other countries, I've been to other countries and for the history channel and it don't matter where. Do you do you, uh, do you have any? Do you have another job, or is this your full time job now? No, this is a big part of it. But we do other stuff too. Crawfish is crawfishing is our main uh, uh, way of making a living. We're in the peak of the season right now. Um, Lael, before I let you go, and you will be up here in Hamilton this weekend, up at the boat show, up at the uh, uh, Warplane Heritage Museum. People can go and meet you there and get an autograph and yep. get a picture. Uh, you ever been bitten? By oh, a yeah, gator? A times. Badly? Oh, I thought you were talking about by my wife. Oh, <laughs> my too, yeah. <laughs> but badly, like enough that it, that it was a serious oh, thing or yeah, just a nip? bad enough to go to the doctor, to the emergency. Really, eh? A few times. Yep. It is. Yeah, I want everybody to come out uh, Saturday and see me out there and bring the kids. You know, I want everybody to come out and visit and if they can and uh, bring the kids with them. The, uh, the website, you have a website, it's chewdom.com, right? That's it, buddy. Yep. And, and you want to send us off with one of your great calls about shoot them? Yeah, shoot them, shoot them. It's a big one. <laughs> Tro- Lord Troy Landry, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. All right, buddy. Thank you. That is uh, Troy Landry again. If you've ever watched Swamp People, you know who that is. Uh, he is. Uh, the, he goes by the King of the Swamp. That's his title, and he's been doing this for uh, for many, 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 many years now. I want to bring Will in for a second here. Have you ever watched Swamp People? Is this is this a show of which you are familiar? I am not very familiar with Swamp People. No, I mean now I am because of uh, the interview. Well, it is the question that I asked, and because it's been, I have no idea. I when I stumbled upon it, probably I don't know two or three years ago, I was flipping channels. I don't have History Channel anymore. I used to, but when I had History Channel, flipping channels, and it's this. I see these guys out in these boats hunting alligators, and for the life of me, Will, I cannot explain to you why it was interesting. I can't. I, I could not verbalize why, but it was one of those shows that you stop, you go, oh, and then all of a sudden, I, hadn't, I wasn't right there at the beginning, all of a sudden, 35, 40 minutes later, the credits are rolling, you're going, huh, wonder when that's on again. <laughs> and for the life of me, I... I mean, I like to think I'm a reasonably intelligent person, and it's not a dumb show. I mean, it's not it's not masterpiece theater, 
But it's just one of those shows that you watch, you go, I, you know what? It's very much like in a completely different way. It's exactly the same, only different. In other words, mm-hmm. those shows on HGTV, those ones where they have the, the home hunter show, house hunter, where they, the people go and they look at three different houses and then they have to buy one of them for the, I, I have no in- intention of buying a home in Curacao. <laughs> Or wherever else in Costa Rica. And yet you watch this and you can't turn the channel. At least I can't. And by the end of the half hour, you're saying, I think I need a home in Curacao. I, I, I really think that makes sense. <laughs> you get totally engaged in totally, the reality. Totally locked in. And the prices are great. And look at the home. It's beautiful. We pay. How much do we pay for a house in Hamilton? Well, here, I'm in the jungle. I've got a pool. I've got a view of the ocean. I've got five bedrooms. It's 150000 I got to buy a home in Curacao. And then, you, you know, you go to bed, totally wired that you're going to buy a home <laughs> in Curacao, and you're lying there, and it takes about a good 10, 15 minutes, and you go... When would I ever go to Curacao or wherever? I'll pick whatever other island you wish yeah. to plop into that discussion. No, I have had this same experience with uh, Antiques Roadshow. Oh, yeah, there you go. You get- <laughs> another another one of those shows that it's like, wait, that is maybe the world's ugliest statue. Yeah. <laughs> I think I better take it on TV. It could be worth a fortune. And you and your buddies are sitting around watching it, arguing about what is going to happen with this when they when someone walks on with an old wristwatch or something. Sorry, you and your buddies watch Antique Roadshow? (laughs) (laughs) That's how it started. We're flipping through the channels one day and Antiques Roadshow comes on and we're like, oh, let's look at this for a laugh. And then again, as you say, 40 minutes later, you're hooked in debating, oh, what is going to happen with this plate? So I would imagine- There are TV shows that for whatever reason, and again, I cannot, I like to think I'm pretty good at verbalizing. I have a, I just can't figure out because they are not highbrow. They are not, it's not logical that you would say, oh yeah, because if I say I'm going to do a show, as Troy said, about hunting alligators and understanding how they hunt alligators, this is not like Elmer Fudd tiptoeing through the, you know, the swamp with a shotgun hunting in the dark. This is just putting a hook on a line and with a chunk of chicken or something on the big hook and you come back later and there's an alligator on there. It's, it's, but then fishing shows are popular. Exactly. That's what I was thinking of. People have been watching fishing shows for ages. This is just like extreme fishing, gatoring. Uh, I have a question though, Scott, with you now uh, becoming a secondhand expert on it through watching the show, is it something you could ever see yourself doing? Absolutely not. (laughs) But again, it's one of those things that I could see myself giving a try to it. But I'm reasonably certain that, uh, let me back up for a second. When we go to the cottage, I go to the, we rent a cottage, our extended family. We rent a cottage once a week, every summer up in the Kawarthas. And one of the great things about the Kawarthas is the fishing. And so I am for one week of the year, I am a wildly enthusiastic fisherman. I'm hopeless. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've got tackle coming out the yin yang. I go to the store and every year they tell me new stuff I got to get. And I go, okay. And I don't generally know what I'm doing, but I'm really enthusiastic. And one of the other great things about the Korth is, or one of the things about it is the fishing. There's walleye, there's all kinds of bass. They also have muskie. Have you ever caught a muskie? I have not caught a muskie. You know no. what a muskie looks like? Kind of. They, <laughs> are, a, not... they are a big, scary fish and yeah. they're fun because they fight like crazy. And the first time I hooked a muskie completely by accident, I mean, I wanted to catch one, didn't know how to catch one. And suddenly I had caught one. It was entirely a fluke. There's people who know what they're doing. I don't. You pull it up beside the boat and I've been thinking, I want to catch a muskie. I want to catch a muskie. And then you get this thing up beside the boat and it was probably 40 inches long (laughs) with teeth that you realize could take off a finger and you think... What now? Now what do I do? How do I even hold this thing? How do I get this thing off the hook? That's a miniature version of the gator thing. So when you ask the question, would I ever consider doing this? Yeah, I would probably go and give it a try. But if you then said, all right, you got to deal with the gator once it's on the hook. See, now it doesn't seem quite as fun. (laughs) It seems just terrifying. But this is what this show is. And so you've got these guys in the in the swamp and they go out and they, I mean, look, this is a show 
to be honest, that the folks from PETA hate probably more than any other show on television. I would imagine so, yes. Because it literally involves the deceasing of gators. And the thing is, as we didn't get into it, but they, they have, apparently, I guess, they breed really fast. And they would overrun the whole area. And so they have, it's a controlled cull, basically. And there's a certain number of tags that are issued every year. And you cannot, for, you have to have a tag for every gator that you catch. And if mm. you are caught with a gator that doesn't have a tag, the fines or whatever are significant. So it is a controlled thing, but it still involves catching animals. Yeah. And ultimately putting a bullet in its head to, you know, to get, to stop it from gnawing your arm off if you pulled it into the boat alive. Yes. Anyway. And then the, in, yeah, well. It is, it is one of the, I, I, as I say, I don't, I mean, I'm not insulting Troy or any other people who do this. I just, for the life of me, can't understand why it is that when I come across this show, I end up stopping and watching, but I do. I, I, I can't explain it. Anyway. If you, if you have no idea what we're talking about, go take a look. If you have Hif- History Channel, go take a look. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.